0: Now a man named Lazarus was ill. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay ill, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is ill. When he heard this, Jesus said, this illness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two more days, and then he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus had fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death,
1: Some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying?
2: Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odour for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this to the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go.
3: Thank you readers, Mihot, Colin and Jade. It was great to hear you all. Let's just join in a brief prayer before we look at this passage together. Heavenly Father, in your Son, Jesus Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Enlighten our minds by your Holy Spirit And grant us that reverence and humility without which no one can understand your truth through that same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, I'd like to talk to you this morning about death. I wonder if you're going to stay and listen. Perhaps some will be tempted to turn off the screen and go and do something else because Death is a topic, if we're honest, that most of us don't like to think about. Uh, But I'm persuaded that this is actually the most important thing we could be talking about today. The global pandemic has shown us this, hasn't it? It has put death right in front of us and confronted us with its reality. No matter who you are, we are all going to die. Now, we all knew that already, but the pandemic has put it right in front of us and forced us to see it. And actually, that's a really good thing. It's a much-needed corrective to our denial of death. We should see this moment in the culture as an opportunity. And it's an opportunity to do some hard thinking about where we're basing our hope for the future. Timothy Keller is a pastor and a theologian and a writer based in Manhattan, New York City, and he's just published a book last month called On Death. I don't know if you... Can you see that on the screen? Yep, On Death, which is a a cheerful title, based on a sermon that he preached at his sister-in-law's funeral. It's a powerful meditation on death and the resources which the Christian faith has to overcome our fear of death. Keller points out that in our modern Western culture, we seem to be far less prepared to face death than any previous generation. Now, why is that? He gives four reasons. Let me just share the first three of them. You'll have to get the book to find out the fourth one. The first reason is the blessing of modern medicine. Curiously enough, our ancestors grew up watching relatives die, often at home. They saw dead bodies. But we don't. We often just don't see death. It is normal, quite normal now in the West, to live to adulthood and never see anyone die. This is quite unprecedented in history. And so... It's easy for us to be in denial about death the anthropologist jeffrey Gora argues that death has now replaced sex as the new unmentionable you know it's often said perhaps stereotypically about the victorians that it was a taboo to talk about sex well we've swapped that around it's now a taboo to talk about death you just don't bring it up at a dinner party the second reason is that our culture is now secular increasingly older cultures whether in older Western cultures or the Eastern ones, taught people that the main thing to live for was something that was outside of this material world, outside of this life. So traditional peoples found that there was some meaning in life beyond the grave. And in lots of ways, some of them thought about in terms of dying and going to heaven. Some cultures thought in terms of dying and being reincarnated. Some thought about returning to the all soul of the universe or being gathered to their ancestors. But all of these cultures had a way of seeing hope and something else and some meaning beyond death. But modern culture is basically secular, which means that there is no God. There's no heaven, no hell, no transcendent, no supernatural, no spiritual dimension. And perhaps the most popular expression of this is the the classic John Lennon song, Imagine. Imagine there's no heaven, sang Lennon. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Now that point of view was supposed to be liberating. But was it? What are the implications of this secular view on the human spirit. It's that whatever gives your life meaning and purpose will have to be something within your earthly time span, these few years that you have on this planet, very limited. Whatever you decide is gonna give meaning to your life will have to be within that time span, some kind of happiness, some kind of comfort, some sort of relationships, some kind of success, It will all be temporary and it will all be utterly destroyed by death. So modern people cannot face death. A culture leaves them unprepared, terribly exposed at the absence of meaning beyond the grave. And the third reason that Dr Keller gives that we're unprepared for death is the problem of insignificance. Now, the problem of insignificance is a little bit less obvious than the first two. So just stay with me and let me explain it. Uh, Ernest Becker, another anthropologist, argued that human beings can't accept, we just deeply at the level of intuition, we can't accept that all we are, our loves, our consciousness, our memories, our relationships, our hopes for beauty and goodness and truth, everything about us is just going to cease to exist forever and we will become fertilizer. Because if death is truly the end, And if eventually the whole world and the whole of human civilization is going to die with the end of the sun, then nothing we can do will make any final difference. Now just think about that for a moment. If we come from nothing and we go to nothing, how can we avoid a profound sense of being insignificant right now? Becker concluded that the idea of death, the fear of it, haunts the human animal like nothing else. We're haunted by the fear of death. And so humans do all that they can to avoid the fatality of death by denial. Now, all of this, these reasons, the the problem of the secular culture, the problem of insignificance, the the blessing of modern medicine, all of this now actually has come into sharp focus for us because of this global uh, COVID pandemic. Now that we're in the face of death and we're seeing death being talked about and we're seeing statistics about death all the time on our news feed it has triggered a crisis for many people and perhaps you're one of them it may be that you are experiencing that crisis yourself and these these feelings of things being temporary and insignificant and and worthless and hopeless are starting to crowd in on you and i want to speak to you today and say friends Strangely enough, this is a God-given opportunity. It's a God-given opportunity to think again, to think about the meaning of our death and to think about the love of God and to think about the Christian hope. Because Christianity is a resurrection faith. Dr Keller sums up the Christian hope like this. Everything in this life is going to be taken away from us except one thing, God's love which can go into death with us and take us through it and into his arms. It's the one thing you can't lose. Without God's love to embrace us, we will always feel radically insecure, and we ought to be. We need to know how to prepare to meet death, whether our own or somebody else's. Perhaps there's no more important task for us than to prepare for death well. Yet it is the one task that our culture offers us almost no help. Outside of Jesus Christ, we have no resources. And so we're looking at this topic for the next few weeks on the subject of resurrection. Resurrection, the belief, the core Christian belief that Jesus rose from the dead, literally, bodily, physically, and will live forever. And so will all those in Christ. Now, this is a a series that's based on a topic or a doctrine rather than just going through a, a book of scripture or a section, which is what we normally do. So I hope it will be helpful to you just to focus in on this doctrine of resurrection for the next month or so. And we're going to start today with this wonderful section in the Gospel of John. John chapter 11. If you've closed your Bible, please open it up again. And in this 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 wonderful narrative where Jesus says the famous words, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. And fans of Manchester music will know that this line inspired the stone roses to greatness. It's a profound statement and it's a great way to start our series on resurrection life. John 11 records the greatest and most powerful sign that Jesus has yet done in the gospel. Notice that John calls them signs, not miracles, because a sign points to something other than itself. It's not just a miracle that does something amazing. It's a sign showing us what Jesus Christ is all about and who he is. And this one, the resurrection of Lazarus, is the most important sign because it shows us the nature of Jesus and what he came to achieve with regard to our great enemy, death. This sign gives us resources to deal with death, to face death and suffering that cannot be found anywhere else. So stay with me on this. We learned three things here. I didn't get these points to my colleague Dan quickly enough for him to have them on a slide. Poor guy. He's very patient with me. But they're so simple. Even the youngest child listening is going to be able to remember them. OK, you ready for these three children? Jesus waits. Jesus weeps. and Jesus wins. Jesus waits, weeps and wins three points. Firstly, Jesus waits. Now, the story so far in John's gospel, Jesus has been revealing who he is uh, over 10 chapters. He's been teaching. He's just finished a massive teaching session in the temple and it's led to controversy. It's led to people threatening his very life. And these were people with power to do that in his culture, death threats. So he leaves Jerusalem. He goes back across the River Jordan to the base camp of operations. And he's teaching again there, and many people believe. And it's a very fruitful phase, a productive phase in Jesus' ministry. Meanwhile, back in Bethany, which is a town a couple of miles away from Jerusalem, a a really tragic crisis is unfolding. Jesus knows a lot of people, but very few of them are described as his friends. And there are three siblings who are particularly close to Jesus, Mary, Martha and Lazarus. They're his friends. Dear, dear friends, and now Lazarus is really ill in the hometown Bethany. And he's so ill that the sisters send a message. They get a messenger to go to Jesus. And in verse 3 they say, Lord, the one you love is ill. Now this is a kind of read-between-the-lines message, isn't it? This is not just letting Lazarus know, Jesus know that Lazarus has got a nasty cough. When they send a message, the one you love is ill, It's a desperate cry for help. It's a signal, we need you to come now. These two sisters are watching their brother die slowly and they are agonizing about it. They've called the doctor enough times. Now they know they have no other hope but Jesus. He is their last resort. And they know Jesus. They've seen him. They've seen him do many powerful healings already. Everyone knows about it. Verse 37 even even refers to it. it. Some of the people say, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? So people know that Jesus is an extraordinary healer. And people have healed a lot of people that aren't even written down in this book. Everyone knows he's got the power to heal Lazarus. They really do. Now, what is the the one thing we expect that Jesus is going to do here? He has the means, the motive and the opportunity to heal Lazarus. He's got the means. We know he's got divine power. He's got a proven track record. He's got the motive. Not only is this a suffering person, it's one of his dearest friends. And he's got the opportunity. He hears while Lazarus is still alive. There's enough time for him to get from the other side of the Jordan to Bethany and heal him. So what on earth do you make of verses 5 and 6? Just uh, look with with me at these verses again. Because this is one of the great mysteries of this section. John 11, verse 5 and 6. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. That's himself. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Notice the language there. Because he loved them, He stayed where he was. He waited. Now this is deliberate. Jesus is waiting until Lazarus is well and truly dead. It is a deliberate delay and according to the Bible it is a delay of love. Now from our perspective this is kind of upside down. And you know in life it sometimes appears that God is distant and that he doesn't care about you anymore. That he's gone silent. And there are times, humanly speaking, where when we look at our circumstances, they seem to admit of only one interpretation. God is absent and he really doesn't care about me. To be honest, shall we? Even for the strongest believers, there are times when it's very difficult to keep on believing in the goodness of God. But according to the Bible, God knows you and loves you. He knows everything about you. He knows everything how many hairs are on your head. He knows how many days there are in your life. And he loves you. But you know, we will never comprehend the mind of God in its entirety. We will never grasp all his workings in their immensity. His thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are beyond and past our finding out. And we learn a strange lesson in this text, first of all. Jesus Christ deliberately waited. He delayed Coming to his friends for their sake, for their sake, because he loved them. And verses 14 and 15, he did it so that they might believe. Let me just read that to you again. He told them plainly, he's talking to his disciples, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. Fascinating comment. In other words, this whole painful episode is a lesson for the disciples and for us. Jesus uses suffering as an opportunity for us to learn and grow and mature into our full humanity, which we would never have done if God had spared us all the trouble and pain. Now, those of you watching who are parents uh, will know that sometimes when a child is struggling and the child feels they're really finding it difficult, the parent's instinct is to swoop in and just deliver them from all trouble. But you know that sometimes you have to let them learn for themselves how to get through it they have to grow up through it and mature without that if the parents constantly come in and rescue all the time the child will never grow to be an adult now this is some kind of medicine for us I think I wonder do we need it now how is your health how are your loved ones how if you've got them how are your children how are you feeling about your job your career Your future. Who is your Lazarus at this present time? What seems to be dying? And where are you going to put your hope? These two sisters sent word to Jesus and then they watched their brother die. Must have been the longest, slowest period of their lives. They must have been out on the road looking to see if Jesus was coming every 10 minutes. And as Lazarus gets sicker and sicker and the clock is ticking... This realisation dawns on them, he's not going to be here in time. Where is Jesus? There's no sign of him. And there's this terrible phrase that they both use. Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. If only, if only. What a terrible, poignant phrase. And yet we know that it was a deliberate delay. It was an intentional delay, a delay of love. Jesus waited for a reason. And he still does. Jesus waits. Secondly, Jesus weeps. The second thing we we notice in this sign is the reaction of Jesus Christ to death. He weeps. Notice the shortest verse in the Bible there, John 11, verse 35. As Jesus approaches the tomb of Lazarus, who is already dead, it says, Jesus wept. Now, that is a simple detail, but we mustn't overlook what this is teaching Because here we learn something very important about Jesus, who is God incarnate. And we need to know this and hold on to it. And it is the nature of God's response to suffering and to grief and to death. When he sees our extremity, how does he feel about it? How does he respond? Is he cold and impassive and distant? Is he cruel and sadistic, inflicting pain? Or is he something else? John chapter 11 is the most intimate window that we have into the emotional life of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must think about it and hold it dear. We notice four things here in this text. Jesus comes, listens, grieves and rages. He comes, listens, grieves and rages. First of all, he comes. Chapter 11 verse 8 and 9 show that there is actually a great personal risk for Jesus to go back to Judea. We know that he's been teaching... And he's had death threats. And so the disciples say, why are you even contemplating going back there? People are seeking your life. It's too risky. But he makes the journey. He comes. We know he waits. But he does come to the sisters. He shows up. Jesus comes. First of, firstly. Secondly, he listens. Both of the sisters come out and they say the same thing. Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. And you know what that implicitly means? It's very polite, but it implicitly is saying, You should have been here. You should have been here. And Jesus listens. And they pour out their misery. And they bring their hurt and their pain to him. And he doesn't rebuke them, saying, How dare you speak to me like that? He doesn't say, No, 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 you wait there. I'm going to solve this. It's going to be amazing. He patiently listens to their grief and does not reproach them. Thirdly, Jesus grieves, especially in verse 33 to 35. He weeps in response to the situation and to their grief. He feels their sorrow. He enters into it. He's stirred to the depths of his heart, even though he knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead in a few minutes. Now, that's an interesting thought. Just look at this again, verse 33. When Jesus saw her, that's Mary, weeping, and and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. So he's not crying here because he's lost his friend and he's grieving about the loss of this great friend Lazarus. He's crying because he sees their emotion. He sees their sorrow, their pain, their grief. Even though he knows what he's about to do for Lazarus, Jesus grieves. And the fourth thing we learn here is that Jesus rages. Now this phrase in verse 33, deeply moved in spirit, carries a sense of being indignant and angry. It can be translated snorting with rage. It's a word that's used of horses, snorting with rage. Jesus is moved with sympathy, but there's something more than that going on here. He is furious. Jesus sees death and its impact on people, and he is furious. He rages at all the brokenness and the misery and sorrow of humanity. A great uh, theologian from Princeton, B.B. Warfield, great theologian of the previous generation, wrote this about these words in a wonderful essay on the emotional life of our Lord. Let me just read this. It's slightly old language, but I hope you can get the sense of it. Why did the sight of the wailing of Mary and her companions enrage Jesus? Because it brought poignantly home to his consciousness the evil of death, its unnaturalness, its violent tyranny. In Mary's grief, Jesus contemplates the general misery of the whole human race and he burns with rage against the oppressor of men inextinguishable fury seizes upon him. His whole being is discomposed and perturbed and his heart cries out. And Warfield continues, it is death that is the object of his wrath and behind death, him who has the power of death and whom he has come into the world to destroy. That's the devil. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but this is incidental. His soul is held by rage and he advances to the tomb as a champion who prepares for conflict. Christian friend, will you behold your God here as he strides towards the tomb, tears still on his face, raging against our unnatural evil enemy to deal with it? Your God comes down. He makes the journey in his own timing. Your God listens patiently as you pour your heart out to him. He doesn't insist that you suffer in silence that you suck it up with a, a, a stiff upper lip and a, chi, a chin-up. He wants to hear you. Your God weeps. He is grieved when we grieve. And he rages. He doesn't wring his hands in a kind of helpless sympathy. He moves towards the grave with strong purpose. Now, why would the creator of the world be angry with something in his world like death, which we're told to accept as part of the circle of life? Why would the creator, Jesus, be so angry with death? The answer is, death is an intruder. It is an intruder. It was not part of God's original design for humanity. And in our hearts, our intuitions, we sense this deeply when we're confronted with it. And I think the coronavirus has shown us this. We were not meant to die. We were meant to last. We were not meant to get more and more feeble and weak We were meant to grow stronger and stronger and more beautiful. But when we turned from God to be our own Lord and Saviour, everything broke. And so nothing in our lives works the way it was originally designed to. It is defaced and distorted. Our lives are broken, our hearts are broken, our relationships are broken, and it all ends in death. And that's why Jesus weeps, and rages not for the loss of Lazarus he knows he will raise Lazarus to life in a few moments time but he weeps and is angry at the monstrosity of the intruder death it is a deep distortion of the world that he made and the world he loves therefore we are absolutely right to grieve to grieve deeply we are right to be horrified at the covid death statistics if we are fully human, we should weep with those who weep. The Lord Jesus did. But we do not stop there as Christian believers. We don't grieve with no hope because we have a creator God and we see him here who rages against death and comes to deal with it. Now we know that God is like this. In Jesus, we see in God the reaction to human death and grief. Jesus waited out of love to teach this important vital lesson to us and Jesus wept showing us in, in the most poignant way God's deep reaction to death and now thirdly and finally Jesus wins Jesus wins right at the heart of this passage is an extraordinary conversation you just turn your bible again it's between uh, Jesus and one of the sisters Martha and uh, it, it picked up in verse 21 and Martha was a great woman we read it in other places she's a real um, kind of household manager she's great she could bring in jesus and all his disciples and cook up a big meal for them she's just a fantastic woman and here martha gets this big breakthrough into who jesus is it's just fantastic so verse 21 lord martha said to jesus if you had been here my brother would not have died but i know that even now god will give you whatever you ask remarkable statement And Jesus replies, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him, I believe that you are the Christ the son of God, who was to come into the world. Remarkable conversation there. Now, in the Greek worldview, and the the Greek culture was dominant at this time uh, in in world history, the Greek and Roman cultures, the Greeks thought of humanity as what's called dualistic. There's a a dual element to human life. They saw that there's the, the soul and the body, and that the body in Greek thinking was inferior It was a prison to be freed from, kind of dirty and inferior, so that the soul could fly away and soar and be free. But the Jewish worldview, which is based on the Old Testament, was deeply affirming of the body and of the created world. And most Jews, virtually all Jews in the first century, believed that God would raise people physically from the dead at the end of time, at a moment called the last day. Everyone believed this, except a minority group called the Sadducees. And that's why they were sad, you see. Now, at this conversation, Jesus is dialoguing with Martha. And she starts out with this comment. It sounds almost reproachful. If you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But there's this reaching out of hope and faith. Even now, I know that God will do whatever you ask. And Jesus then makes an orthodox statement, again, teasing out the faith of Martha and says, "Uh, your brother will rise again. And she says, yes, I I know, I know, verse 24. And she's repeating that standard Jewish belief that, yes, I know, I believe that Lazarus will rise again in the last day. But now Jesus moves it on to another level, which no one had ever done before or since. He says in verse 25 and 26, an I am statement one of his big identifying statements in john's gospel this is the sixth one it's absolutely astonishing it's i am the resurrection and the life in other words the resurrection is not a concept it's a person the resurrection is not a concept it's a person jesus christ himself embodies and causes our resurrection from the dead Jesus embodies and causes our resurrection. So if you believe in and you trust and follow Jesus, he guarantees that you too will live even though you die. That's what he's saying here. In other words, Jesus Christ here is claiming to be the one person who deals with death, our final enemy. Jesus is claiming to be the one who can give you life that will not break. A life that will last and get stronger and more beautiful through all the thousands of years ahead and this is entirely consistent by the way with everything that readers of John's gospel will have learned so far a quick recap John begins by saying that that Jesus is is the word who was with God and who was God he makes a clear statement of Jesus divinity he says he was the only son of God eternally intimate with the father It says that Jesus was the loving creator. All things were made through him and for him. It says that he's the light of the world come to turn back the darkness. Now these were bold claims. But how were these people to know that Jesus really did have the power to defeat death. And that he wasn't just basically saying something outrageous. That's why Lazarus had to die. Because Jesus has to demonstrate here his power over death. So he commands that the gravestone be rolled away. Now. This is pretty horrible. No one wants to do it, I'm sure. Lazarus had been dead for four days and it's a hot climate. And they even mentioned that the body will be putrefying and and the smell will be overpowering. Nobody wants to take that stone away. In fact, these these caves where they would put the bodies to let the flesh decompose could have several people in, maybe up to eight people. You really didn't want to roll the stone away. But such is Jesus' authority that they do it. And he steps strides towards the tomb and he commands, Lazarus, come out. And stumbling out, still wrapped in his grave clothes, with a cloth on his face, looking like the mummy, comes Lazarus. Only this isn't the mummy. This isn't some kind of undead, strange, you know, zombie film. This is a person who's genuinely raised back to life. His body restored to health and vigour. Life has returned. Lazarus, friend of Jesus, who got to be a guest at his own funeral party. Only now that was turned into a celebration. Jesus wins. He shows here, he demonstrates that he has the power over death and no other religious leader has claimed this kind of power in himself. Our final enemy will be defeated What we see in this story is the death of death and we anticipate therefore the resurrection from the dead. Now that's great for Lazarus, Mary and Martha but what about you and me? We will learn if we read the rest of the story how Jesus has conquered death. At the end of chapter 11 of this chapter after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead all of his enemies said that's it that's the final straw we have got to kill Jesus now. You see, Jesus knew that raising Lazarus from the dead would push his enemies to their most extreme measures. It would lead to his own death sentence. So he knew that the only way he could get Lazarus out of the tomb was to put himself into it. And that's how it works. That's true for all of us. If Jesus is going to guarantee resurrection for all those who trust in him, then he must put himself into the grave. And that is what he did on the cross. At the cross, Jesus did not die for his own sins. He was morally pure, blameless, absolutely perfect. He died for his people as their head, their representative and their substitute. He dies the death that we were due. And in his death, he pays all our debts and takes our shame away. And on the third day, Jesus rose to new life, never to die again, which means that we can too. This is our hope of bodily resurrection, of life without end. Jesus has not just come down from heaven to earth. It's equally important to realise he's come from the future into the present. When he says, I am the resurrection and the life, he's announcing the future verdict that God will make on death. The future that has just burst into the present. Mary and Martha in this little localised scene see what God will one day do for all his people. To reverse decay, to recreate life, to bring light and joy back to their eyes. So we have a choice here. We can follow Martha's example. We can choose to trust Jesus in the spite of our misery and tears. Or we can turn from him and become hopeless and bitter. Last year, my wife and I attended the funeral of a dear friend. He'd been very ill for quite a few years and he'd had plenty of time to prepare for his death. He wrote some of the most powerful words that I have ever heard, uh, which were read out at the funeral. I want to share some of them with you now because they completely pertain to what we're talking about today. His name was Shamim. In dying, I want to say to those I have loved and to those who have loved me, don't magnify me. Remember the reality. I was someone who sometimes got you cross and irritated you and let you down and disappointed you and hurt you. So please don't remember an imaginary relationship with me. It was good, but it could have been better. I loved you, but I could have loved you better. Just as you loved me, but could have loved me better. This was read out at the funeral. So don't let us trust in our love for one another. Let's trust in God's love for us so that the change in our relationship which my death will bring can strengthen each of our relationship with Jesus. He reflected on his physical illness. No physical pleasures can any longer please as they once did. Food, exercise, rest, the loss of appetite, bad indigestion, fatigue, incontinence, cramps and the side effects of steroids have taken their joys away. Weariness rules and physical pleasures flee. But while physical things spoil and go dim, spiritual things grow brighter and clearer. I see my sin very clearly. I see how much it controls my life. I think how little time I've got left to make further progress against my pride, my irritability, my grumpiness, my selfishness. I can see the end of life. It looms over the horizon and I'm encouraged to think It will not now be long before I am there. The relationship with Jesus is the only thing that has made sense of my physical life, and at my death, it will be everything. My death forces me to face the resurrection of Jesus. No longer is it a bald fact of history for me, it is a crucial significance for every person who faces death honestly. Jesus has already risen. If I know him now, I will know him then. He is my assurance in dying. Those are the words of a dying man. And he speaks to each of us now, I think. He speaks to us from a position of physical pain and misery that most of us have never been through. But he says... If I know Jesus now, I will know him then. He is my assurance in dying. So let me ask you just to contemplate that Jesus waited, he wept, and then he won. As you think about death this week, let's pray together. Gracious Lord, we must admit that we're often unprepared for the most significant and important things in our lives. We tend to play on the fringes and and procrastinate and sort of fiddle away our time, but the days are short and we see that now. Help us, Lord, to see you afresh. Help us to come to you in that that scene and facing that empty tomb. Help us to realise that the only hope we can have in life or death, the only comfort is in you, and help us to put our trust in you. More and more fully we pray, in Jesus' name, Amen.